Welcome to the Palladium Podcast, uh, episode 12. I'm Jonah Bennett, the host, and I'm joined as always by... Ash Moulton, managing editor. And uh, Wolf Tyvee. Yeah, I'm not going to keep introducing you guys. You guys have to stick up for yourselves. <laughs> All right, come on, come on. <laughs> okay, um, so obviously the first thing we're going to do is, is go through the reader mailbag. And this one this week is pretty topical. Uh, basically, who the, the question is, who attacked the Japanese oil tanker near the Strait of Hormuz? So, I can go first on this one. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. You While we sit here thinking about, was it Iran? People talk about false flags. We are being divided against each other. While the true culprit, the octopuses, which inhabit our oceans, <laughs> snicker and cackle at us. The evil of these cephalopods cannot be underestimated. Do they, like, do they bubble? They have. They, they bubble, yeah. They're bubbling malevolently at our no, they, foolishness. They do things with their tongues. They do things with their they tongues. They don't have tongues, dude. They have beaks. Right, right, right. I keep forgetting. I read the They're too evil for language, and we need to act against them as quickly as possible, and I'm calling for a nation-building intervention on the <laughs> ocean floor. We will nuke the ocean. <laughs> nuke the oceans. Yeah, I mean, those submarines have to be used for something, after all. Anyway, Wolf, go ahead. Um, well, I, I mean, my best theory, I've thought about this a lot, my best theory is that it was John Bolton himself. He put on a disguise, <laughs> took out a, a secret stealth uh, speedboat, and and you know he just he just wanted to get something started. He needed you know sometimes you got to do what you got to do. It's a man sometimes, with initiative. You, know, you, you got to wag the dog. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, anyway, I guess my answer is going to be uh, Chad the country, uh, and the reason for that is is I feel like. A, a landlocked country in Africa has a lot of a lot of uh, interest in the Strait itself, so that that makes the most sense to me. Uh, although most people aren't really talking about that, although you know, so, so, sometimes you'll you'll hear uh, you know theories about it here and there on on Snopes or NaturalNews.com, uh, <laughs> and and I, I I tend to hold those sites in very high regard. So that's that that would be my answer. I dream of the day when Palladium can match naturalnews.com in its output and quality. Wow. Oh, I, oh, I, we're nowhere even close. I, I couldn't even dream One day, of it. brothers. One day, brothers. All right. Uh, that's enough of that. Let's get on to what we're going to talk about this week, which is the article I wrote for Friday, uh, June 21st, which conveniently is exactly a month uh, after the U.S. Department of Commerce added Huawei. Uh, to the entity list um, that was done on May 21st. And what that is, is it effectively bars the export of American goods to the Chinese company, uh, particularly advanced microprocessors. And so uh, there's a question of whether the ban is going to be fatal to Huawei or whether they're you know, going to go through a difficult you know, $30 billion loss uh, over the next couple of years, but but the ban is not going to be existential. So I wrote a little something, um, which you should read to get more background information because I'm not going to just summarize the entire article here, but it's going to be a good jump off for us to discuss some issues between the relationship of uh, economics and politics, of national security concerns, 
uh, starting to more aggressively and publicly override, uh, you know, the concerns of of uh, domestic corporations. Um, also, of note is actually I'll, I'll just uh, try and and summarize this just a little bit. I won't do the whole article, but I'll try and summarize it a little bit. Basically, uh, let me give a quick kind of timeline. Uh, so this, this, this ban on, on May 21st was, was not out of the blue in, in any way, right? You could go back to 2001, 2003, when you hear, uh, you know, murmurs of similar actions or similar actions being done in places like Australia or New Zealand or India. Uh, various was, it were, was it that far back? Was it that far back? Yep. It was that far back. Uh, I think, uh, as, I'm trying to think like as earlier as early as uh, you know 2000 what was it 2001 you have the Indian security services accusing Huawei of aiding the Taliban actually and then you know in 2003 you have Cisco uh, the network manufacturing company uh, suing Huawei over uh, intellectual property theft so uh, you know, this has been, in a sense, a, a long time coming, and you've had various intel U.S. intelligence chiefs and uh, others uh, making similar claims about intellectual property theft or especially espionage. Uh, but in the last, I'm just going to go over the timeline briefly over the last couple years to kind of set the stage of uh, this this ban, really, on the, on the 21st. Um, so on, on February 13th, 2018, you've got the FBI director, Chris Ray, uh, warning in general against buying Huawei and ZTE phones. Uh, March 22nd, 2018, Huawei loses Best Buy as a retail partner. Uh, shortly after that, in early May, the Pe Pentagon bans the sale of Huawei and ZTE phones on military bases. Um, Fast forward to June, and uh, you have Facebook giving Huawei special access to user data, uh, Congress complaining that Google has ties to Huawei. Uh, July 11th, Australia saying it'll ban Huawei from a 5G rollout because of security concerns. Um, there's another Senate hearing in September 2018 uh, where uh, the Senate calls out Huawei and ZTE for similar behavior. Uh, then there's some dispute in October about with a with a U.S. startup called Cnex Labs about the theft of technology. Um, you know, a couple months later, and and of course there's even more news that I'm skipping over month by month because it's really heated up over the last two years. Yeah. So obviously the the last two years have been big. Um, what I'm really curious about, like one of the things that that uh, we made note of in the article is, you know, as, as you were saying, this is, um, something we haven't necessarily seen a lot of recently, which is more overtly political and power focused, um, uh, reasoning being done by the state as such in America to, to take right. actions in industrial policy and, and elsewhere, basically, on the basis of something other than like economic theory or whatever that, that comes out of the academic departments. Um, so, and, and we commented that like, okay, that, that kind of indicates um, 
since it's a novel move, it indicates some some player, some competent strategist in there somewhere, making uh, sort of grabbing grabbing control of some of these uh, these uh, factors in the government and steering them in a different direction. And and so like it's interesting that they're able to do that. First of all, we can talk about that later. But but just like in terms of identifying like where that impetus came from. Um, one obvious candidate is someone in the Trump administration, maybe Trump himself. Uh, he was obviously the one who signed the executive order banning Huawei products um, or banning export of, of American products to Huawei. Um, and and Trump obviously had his like uh, sort of competitive rhetoric against China in the election. Um, so I'm curious what precursors to this conflict were happening before the election of Trump. Like how much of this is driven by the Trump administration kind of breaking rank with previous administrations on how we think about the American empire and the American economic order and so on. Um, and how much is it a conflict that was building up over time uh, and, and maybe coming from more factors within the, the permanent government, like the intelligence agencies. Do, does, does, the, um, does the timeline you've got have any, um, have any clues to that? So uh, it seems pretty clear to me that it's not uh, specifically tied to the Trump administration. You have national security officials going back years, and even the Obama administration itself engaging in, in some action in this area. Okay. Uh, so I think uh, the interesting things here are, are the public nature of the ban um, and the aggressive nature of the ban. Um, because as I note in the article, it's, it's quite, it's extremely aggressive to add Huawei to the entity list. Um, and so, you know, while in the past, the U.S. has taken, has done similar actions, as I noted, you know, the ban on military bases and so on. This is a very aggressive move. And part of it is because the national security state is having a difficult time dictating decision making on this issue in European countries, which it considers uh, to be its ally. Allies. Yeah, yeah, like like there's there's that comment in the article um, that you made, which was that um, basically the Europeans don't seem to be going along with this kind of stuff anymore. Like they're not going along with the more subtle, hey, can you guys not buy from Huawei? We're trying to isolate them, or like we're trying to limit the, their sort of like penetration into our space, etc. Um, so that kind of stuff has kind of gone a, like gone away as as factors that are seeming to be convincing to the European countries. And so the hypothesis is that this ban is being rolled out basically to cripple Huawei so that it doesn't matter whether the Europeans, um, whether right. the Europeans would go with them, they're, they're just not going to be able to. Um, so that's, that's an interesting factor. Yeah. I think the important point you brought up there was this, um, the erosion of this line that's existed, at least in theory, between politics and economics, where economics is seen very much, even things like international trade are seen as very grounded in this objective science where you have a set of policies 
that is essentially meant to be followed is like particularly the pursuit of free trade, almost regardless of the broader reality. And I think this shows like the continuity of this approach shows that that's never actually been fully accepted by swaths of the government because you have you have a certain set of policy wonks or ideologues or people in trade who accept this. But um, in national security in particularly, but I would also argue in the military, you have certain industries, particularly natural resource industries like oil, where there's always been this inherently political element, and where we saw even even in the Iraq war, right, we, Halliburton and the role that company had um, in, in the aftermath of the war, there's always been this deep intertwining. And in that period, people, it was sort of a very it was a valid narrative. People talk about crony capitalism and corruption and stuff like that, and there, that had a certain validity to it. But I think it, it it's only now that we're getting to this deeper concept where when we're talking about politics or economics, we're talking about forms of power and these like material power is power and the especially the ability to control how development works, which countries get to develop. This is something that powerful countries have always done. And we've always cycled through where, um, you know, how explicitly economic policy becomes driven by by the political interest behind it. Um, I think we're at a point now where it's not just happening in this case, right? It, antitrust debates about domestic policy, um, even just talk about class in terms of party bases, like all these economic in all these economic debates, rather, the political aspect of economics has resurfaced. And I would say that the public nature of this ban is really, I mean, it's public to send a message, but I think the comfort with it, shows that governments themselves, right, when uh, you're actually put in a situation where your power is threatened, where you have to make a call, you're not going to let the narrative actually undermine your interests in the long run. Yeah, and it's so it's almost like, a, a again, a sign of life from the government, uh, the ability to just like overturn the narrative and go a different direction. Um, so like on the antitrust thing in particular, I remember our article on Amazon uh, by Chris, Chris Gillette. Um, he he commented on antitrust in that, and like one of the interesting features of the antitrust legislation right now is that it's it's all based on this idea of like, does it harm the consumer? It's all based on consumer harm, right? Which is like inherently this. Um, kind of technocratic, objective, um, non-political framing of the issue. Whereas I would expect that a lot of the antitrust stuff in the past or like in abstract or in practice, um, antitrust is, is just as often going to be used as a punishment against companies that uh, aren't coordinating politically or don't seem to be able to coordinate politically. Um, and, and thus has this like large political dimension to it um at the very least a dimension of like industrial policy of, of the government sort of deciding which way the economy is going to go and so through the kind of like latter quarter of the 20th century and the early 20th 21st century we've had a very kind of technocratic um frame in in discussing economics and politics and how those things relate like there's sort of this like I guess did this come up with Reagan or Reagan like 
you know, obviously I'm not old enough to, to remember this stuff, but um, Reagan and Thatcher come in with this kind of like overtly more neoliberal line that's going to be much, that's like much more technocratic, much more like the government should just stay out of the way and let the market, let the, let the capitalists do their thing uh, for the most part. Like they had that. Yeah, kind I mean, of the line. irony there, right, is that they were in fact extremely aware of the the political consequences because both Reagan and Thatcher were the particularly anti-Soviet um, leaders in the Western world, and they had a like a, I think a great awareness of how important economics was to politics. I would almost argue that maybe it was it was after them. It was maybe even after the fall of the Soviet Union, right, where you have this general sense right. that, okay, we've established now that the the, the trade and market system um, well, yeah, it's, it's this, is, like the, is the superior one. The, the fall of the Soviet Union was this, like, exuberant event for the, the like, the end of history sort of liberal, like the idea that like, oh yeah, democracy and markets and neoliberalism and like whatever our current beliefs happen to be is just like the final stage of history because now the UN has achieved global dominance. Uh, you know, the last resistor has fallen, right? Um, and and so there was this like big exuberant moment and and they ended up kind of dominating or those voices ended up dominating the public sphere for quite some time. Um, and yeah. this, this and, comes and back I think to the, like... the, the fact that it was a, a, for a short time, it seemed like a unipolar world order. I think that can't be underestimated. It's, yeah. it gave the impression that all future, you know, dialectic, if you want, was going to occur within this particular frame. And I think for this piece, the fact that multipolarity was highlighted is actually extremely important here. Yeah. Well, coming back to the, the comments, um, when you guys made up about how this represents, like maybe a resurgence of a type of thought within the government that never actually went away. Right. I found that interesting. Like the, the, the security state, the intelligence agencies and so on, they've probably always been thinking about this like this, right? Like they, they probably never lost that institutional memory of like, no, actually the government does have legitimate, you know, hands on the levers of the economy and so on for political purposes especially within within things like the CIA and so on, right? Like where that was very much their business in the middle of the 20th century. Um, yeah, it seems there, there's been an interesting uh, public zeitgeist switch where previously the idea of a another political power projecting political will into the U.S. would just be uh, written off as absurd. I'm thinking about the, the era after the 1990s. Um, and fair, fair enough, I guess. Uh, I, I, I won't talk about, uh, you know, communist involvement in the U.S. government at various levels during the 20th century. <laughs> that's, a, that's a topic for another podcast, obviously. Um, but even if, the, even granted that, there's a very big difference between uh, network infrastructure and foreign assets, as in like individual people. Like there's a very big difference. And I think... Uh, it's only relatively recently that uh, China has been uh, stepping up more aggressively on the global scene, and uh, its 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 own companies have been certainly uh, at the top tier uh, of uh, technological development in, say, like the the network infrastructure industry or smartphones, 
and so on. And of course, this 5G rollout is a good example of that. Um, and so now you have uh, an actor that's uh, certainly rising, uh, certainly has a, a good understanding of how its own state can use, you know, nominally private companies for uh, its own ends, for geopolitical ends. And those companies are uh, deploying an infrastructure, valuable infrastructure in countries all over the world. And, uh, you know, it's obvious, as I wrote, uh, since the Snowden revelations, it's pretty clear that even in the U.S., uh, ultimately, private companies that control this kind of valuable infrastructure at the end of the day are going to be subordinate to national security demands. Um, and I know Huawei has protested that, you know, if the Chinese government uh, forced it to, uh, you know, use its infrastructure for espionage, it would refuse. Yeah, right. That's, that's <laughs> obviously a load of, uh, you know, I won't say would I, would I actually think about that on the air because this is a show for children as well. <laughs> this is a family-friendly show. Uh, but that's obviously ridiculous. Uh, I would I would take it more seriously if uh, you know the top executives of Huawei uh, actually fled to Dubai, kind of like Pavel Durov, who yeah I was I was going to bring that up yeah founder of uh, you know VK and Telegram, but of course the difference between you know those companies is that uh, VK and Telegram servers can just exist anywhere in the world. And most of the heavy lifting is done by the software engineering team. Whereas with Huawei, you kind of depend a lot on uh, very capital intensive factory production. And you can't just pick all of that up and drop it in Dubai, which you, which like someone yeah, like well, and, can do. Yeah. And, and like good luck escaping the Chinese government the way you can escape the Russian government, right? Like the Russian government is nowhere near as, as, is strong as the Chinese government, basically. Like, and and so so bringing up Pavel again, um, Pavel Durov, the founder of Telegram and VK. Um, he recently had this little, you know, he does these announcements occasionally to the people who follow him. I guess um, he had this this kind of discussion of this issue precisely in the context of Telegram, where. You know, they've had to flee Russia. They're not cooperating with the Russian government. They get a lot of trouble for that. They're also not cooperating with Western governments, so they claim. Um, and and like and, and because of that, they have these interesting anecdotes like, oh, well, part of the Telegram team went to the United States for, um, you know, for a few weeks, basically, and like had multiple run ins with the FBI during that time. Right. <laughs> yeah, and of and like. You know, and then and then he's you know he he makes this implication, which is like, okay, look, if that happens to our team in the course of a few weeks, like there's no way Facebook and WhatsApp and Twitter and Google and all these companies that have like that also, by the way, like many in many cases have a revolving door with the U.S. government uh, in terms of personnel. It, like there's just no way those those companies are going to actually resist when the men in black uniforms from the FBI show up and be like. Look, comrade, you need to give us the data. <laughs> right, 
right, right. Yeah, well, and, and it shows you because these companies are global, because, you know, on the one hand, there's this discussion that occurs about, like, bounded nation states versus globally mobile capital. But as we've discussed before, right, America is hardly a bounded nation state. It's a global right. power. It it's has an a political infrastructure and a military infrastructure that spreads globally. And even with things like free trade, right, I mean, you know, to the, like... Although it's true that trade was often presented as a kind of apolitical thing, even the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is now defunct, um, it was going, it had been discussed since the 2000s, and it was moving into the 2010s. And the, but from the start, it was discussed as a way to economically reduce dependency of those countries, uh, the, the, the Asian sphere countries involved in it on China. Um, mm -hmm. And so there was always a very explicit political aspect to free trade. Uh, and I mean, you know, there always has been. For there's lots of literature on on the kind of politics behind a lot of free trade deals yeah, but, and some but of the a lot dirty of the, tricks like, that have gone into them. The the mainstream and sort of like academic and and like wonk political um, narrative has very much been this kind of like libertarian kind of viewpoint where you know oh we're just trying to maximize global flourishing and you know the best way for everyone is just we do fully free trade and you know the, the and, worker and the worker can exist. deal with it yeah states don't exist power doesn't exist etc and that's been really like like this strong narrative within within the um within how the public understands this stuff. Like, even a couple of years ago, right? You, you know, That's we, what I mean about zeitgeist. Yeah, like, even a couple of years ago, like, you try to bring up these, like, you try to argue against those points, and, and people would be like, no, that's crazy. Like, oh, yeah, maybe that's real, but, like, you know, the literature says this other thing. And, like, like people would, would just not think about that. It was just like, you know, they'd been given their their kind of um, their worldview, and, and it did not include power. And, yeah, well, and this 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 Huawei thing is interesting in that it's really, um, it's just breaking that narrative. It's well, it's I'll it's blowing it out. I'll tell you why it's effective because the Trump administration wants it, the national security state wants it, and the newspapers are uh, amb ambivalent. They're either for it or some are against, or it doesn't really matter. Essentially, yeah. So so like, what I'm curious is like, who were the power players involved in in creating that previous narrative like i know people often pin it on like the Koch brothers and stuff right where it's like oh yeah you know they're going to fund all these sort of market oriented things that that downplay the the importance of political power and so on or there's people they blame it on on like the buckleyite types the national review and so on kind of keeping the keeping the conservatives from ever talking about this and and the um the the democrats i'm not sure um uh, like I, I haven't heard many of the the theories on that end, or I can't. They don't come to mind immediately. But like, who was it who was putting forth that narrative? And then like, have they been recently? Um, have they recently lost a bunch of power? I mean, as, this is an assumption is, is here, right? The there's a, there's a, an implicit assumption going on where there's kind of one narrative even to be had. Whereas in practice, right, all of these things usually occur because a number of 
different interests with very different goals will all cooperate and create a threshold of uh, political movement. So, you know, we, we, we see in, in just in terms of economic history, right, there was a period when the U.S. had a much more active state in its economy. There was a period in the 70s and so on where you had uh, where you had inflation going on. Um, there was economic crisis. And then that makes a lot of people lose faith in it. There's this political aspect um, in that context, uh, the kind of early moves of what we could now call neoliberalism um, seem to mm -hmm. be a way to kind of cut policies uh, or, or, or cut back government involvement in areas where it, it, it in, in some ways had become obstructive. But because for whatever reason, the ability didn't seem to exist to actually just reform or get rid of bureaucracies in a sort of centrally coordinated way. Uh, instead, the result was this kind of full scaling back on the ideological level that government just can't do things essentially, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, th this is like we've commented before through the latter half of the 20th century, you have kind of like this decline in the competence and coordinatability of these these central institutions in government and and yeah so like to some extent this was a reaction to that like all right look if the government isn't working let's just kind of root around the government uh we'll just do broadcast ideology type stuff and we'll say basically let's disempower the government um by saying that they don't matter they don't do anything power isn't real government can't get anything done all this kind of stuff and and so, but what's interesting here is just like that now, I don't know if everyone else is reading this the same way we are, but like it does seem to just like it's a pretty good demonstration that like decisively like it's a decisive no on a lot of those those points. Like, first of all, like there's there's just a lot of lessons we can draw from this Huawei thing. Right. Like, first of all, uh, there is this whole political dimension to the economic calculus. There is this such thing as as industrial policy and so on. And that's kind of like the larger zeitgeist point, uh, as Jonah was saying, uh, in, in like the last year, maybe like the industrial policy has gone from this thing that like nerds who read books from the, from the 19th century talk about to like almost mainstream. Um, and then we have, um, just like on this kind of like this particular version of liberalism that's the sort of power denialist um, that that is just getting like run over by the government and and pushed like basically pushed out of pushed out of the, the set of like concerns that actually affect decisions. So I don't know if people are going to notice that and it's going to like kill that big piece of narrative. That would be interesting to see whether like is this the death of, of like libertarianism and even neoliberalism or something? I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far. I mean, there's been very that. interesting moves here, right? So in, in terms of industrial policy, um, you're mentioning this is coming to the forefront and this is very much true. And we've had like, for example, Elizabeth Warren talk about things like economic patriotism. That's gotten yeah, a lot yeah. of media press, but even within institutions, which are considered very prototypically neoliberal, um, yeah. There is, in fact, movement happening in industrial development, industrial policy, rather, um, is receiving discussion, I think, now in a way that it hasn't before. So in particular, um, there is a paper that the IMF came out with this year by Sharif and Hazanov. 
Um, and I love the name. Uh, it's called The Return of the Policy That Shall Not Be Named Principles right. of Industrial Policy, right? And so there, there's a very open admission Ter- here. Name. Yeah, but it, it shows, uh, I mean, in the, in, in the intro of the paper itself, which, you know, even if people don't make their way through the whole paper, I, 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 I much, very much recommend it. It's on the on the IMF website. You can read it for free. And they talk in, in the paper itself about how within the IMF, there were, you know, you, ha- you would have the odd voice crop up occasionally that would want to talk about industrial policy and they were always like seen as these weird outliers um who didn't really need to be talked to but in fact um you know uh in this context where several governments are now wanting to look at development as like a large coordinated thing rather than just kind of a bottom-up open the markets approach um even these institutions are seeing that you actually have to start looking at how has state intervention been done and how has it been done successfully. And so in the case of that paper, they, it mostly focuses on the, the the so-called Asian tigers or Asian miracles. Um, so these were countries that achieved uh, economic growth with a lot, a lot of state intervention, but that was sustained and was able to move from like basic industrialization to a service economy. And because you have uh, this phenomenon of a middle income trap where um, when it comes to like basic industrialization and sort of co- like copying industries, um, companies can sometimes achieve growth. But then when they get to the point where they have to start innovating, uh, they they essentially stagnate and they don't really hit their own stride in terms of uh, not just getting to kind of a certain level of development, but actually going beyond the frontier, so to speak. And uh, the, the, the thing, the main question in the industrial policy discussion in economics is essentially how can states... Uh, properly intervene in ways that don't fall into these traps. And there's actually, uh, like, there's a lot of empirical cases you can look at. Um, part of the problem, right, has been that in the past, we'll, we'll, like, economists will will take uh, a set of countries and they'll do, do things like regressions and they'll try and coordinate specific factors. But in fact, uh, that makes people overlook outliers as, like, somehow weird and in the case of you know countries like uh uh you know the chinese province of taiwan or you have like south korea um you know there was this general narrative of oh oh they're just like very industrious um you know they're very hard working um and it's almost like oh well you know they just we have this weirdly exceptional talented population yeah, just, just magic luck. but it, yeah Nothing it's magic and, and we, we see we can look at the history yeah. of these countries and we can see that that's not how it played out at all and so in the case of south korea you had um the government there uh undertake like it's sometimes called like a mission-oriented approach. So you have like um, Mariana Mazzucato, who's one of the economists who looks at this. She focuses on this mission-oriented aspect. Um, and to, to do industrial policy successfully, um, it actually requires a high degree of political action. Like it, to just do it, you know, if you're just trying to provide basic supports, it doesn't actually work as well. You can get slow growth, 
um, you know, even sustained for a certain amount of time. But these sort of like miracle economies, as they're called, you will not get that unless you have quite an active approach. And so in the paper, there's a great example given where um, General Park Chung-hee, who was uh, president in the, uh, the 60s, um, in South Korea, he's, you know, and it's a very poor country at this time. People forget that there was a while when North Korea was, in fact, developing faster than the South was uh, at, the, at the, you know, start of that history. And South Korea ultimately completely overtook them uh, in, in only a generation. And so in this example, um, uh, General Park is talking to a group of miners who are working at, as guest workers in, in West Germany uh, at the time. And he kind of, you know, he, he sort of laments in his speech, like, how poor they are as a people and how everyone is having to work so hard. Um, but he then essentially proposes, he, he says, how can a country like Korea, which was not fully prepared for the upcoming era, be as rich as Germany is now? And this, in fact, happened, right, um, through the strategic use of state intervention, including the building of state industries, with very clear aims. And the, 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 this is the key here. They had a very clear aim as to what, like, uh, the, the standard of living they wanted to reach was. And they also had a very disciplined and essentially cutthroat approach to weeding out uncompetitive or economically weak sectors of the economy. And where they did state intervention, they made sure to do it in, in sort of upstream sectors. What this does is it allows you to have spillover effects where you, you achieve competency in an area that then lets you uh, kind of ratchet up uh, later industries, right? So like steel is, is an example here. But they also essentially built an auto industry when there was no expertise whatsoever in the country at that time. And that had its own spillover effects. So, you know, this, when we're talking about the, the idea of a state, which thinks as a state, this is a great example, I would say, because this is not, you know, imagine a western government which thinks like not only thinks on the level of a full generation long project but actually carries it out it's very difficult to consider today and yet that's the yeah. sort of state that's necessary in order for these policies to work correctly so well, i would predict that not... as as economists are talking about this they will actually have to address the the idea of the state yeah well and it's not that weird right like 50 years ago there were a lot of Western countries doing that kind of stuff and a hundred years ago. And then, you know, like it, it was very much more a thing uh, in the first half of the 20th century that, that this was happening. And actually this reminds me of uh, something I wanted to say, which is like, you know, this is almost the return of, of like a state driven kind of central planning approach. And, and where's that coming from? Why is that returning? Well, it's not from internal factors within America, but like, d despite that, you know, it, that that kind of thinking is returning even to America. Um, it hasn't really gotten going yet, but we can see the zeitgeist starting to shift. And, you know, like even our project, right, like this whole project is like inherently predicated on this study of the state. Like, where did we get that idea? Where are these where are these uh, sort of zeitgeist shifts coming from? A lot of this is coming from the fact that China has, you know, pulled itself up by the bootstrap so effectively using very overtly this kind of methods. And this brings us back to uh, an interesting comment that uh, Iago Campos, one of our authors, made in one of his very early articles on Palladium, which was um, he commented 
um, he said that in these great power competitions, these competitions um, between between countries that are striving to overcome each other, they don't necessarily become different. They don't like have this this like explosion in diversity, but rather they they both change a lot, but they become more similar. And so that I thought was really an interesting point made at the time. And I was like, hmm, that's okay, let's just file that away. But now we can start to see this happening, which is like America had been sort of going one way. And now this rising phenomena of, of state-driven development in China has really spurred, I would say, the same kind of thinking in America, though not, not sort of the rubber has not met the road yet, but like the thinking is starting to happen. And I think we can predict, um, you know, just following on what Yago said, basically, yeah, we are going to see in the West and in America a resurgence of this kind of thinking in a way that brings us actually closer to what, um, closer to how to how China works. Yeah. Well, and interestingly, the 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 IMF paper makes a similar point here uh, when it comes to wealth building. Um, countries that achieve like tremendous economic growth end up using, if not identical policies, they at least have a similar framework. And as they become yeah. wealthier, they start to have to undertake similar actions like diversification. Whereas countries that are poor or, or you know, before they're able to start doing that, they're each poor in their own way, essentially. And so the, the paper's paraphrasing Tolstoy when they say this, but, you know, the reason that, like, North Korea would be poor versus, like, rural parts of Nigeria versus, um, you, you know, say, say parts of Eastern Europe, uh, they're all poor, but you're not going to find exactly the same causes there. Um, so in yeah, that sure. way, states have to be adaptive to these initial conditions, but when, you know, and, and so the same industry is not going to work in every country. And that's a judgment call. That's why having good judgment and a good basis for judgment is necessary and why you can't simply, um, you know, try, try and be entirely scientific in the sense like the, the tools you're using have to be objective. But the, the, the job of, of, of I, I'll go back to the example of South Korea building an auto industry when they really had no prerequisites for it. They were, the way they made it successful was like by a lot of means testing, by a lot of objective observation. But there was a level of judgment and prediction that had to occur beforehand. Uh, and, yeah. and, and so, like. And a level of theory to even interpret your empirical data. Right. But then as that grows, then you're able to learn. I think that there's another point you made where it's kind of this fact of Chinese development being very state backed that's made it hard to ignore. And I think that's actually true. It sounds very simplistic, but I mean, we had these Asian tiger economies and they were simply treated as outliers. We could ignore them because they were kind of smaller countries in our orbit. And especially yeah, well, in the case of Korea or Taiwan, we just yeah, it's, juxtapose it's them with these other powers. Like like you see these these memes, right, where like you, you show a picture of the Koreas from space at night and you're like, oh, you know, really good natural experiment, capitalism versus communism, right? One yeah, leads exactly. to the lights being on, the other one leads to the lights being off. And, and so like what that demonstrates is that people are thinking about that in terms of capitalism and communism. They're not thinking about that like they're thinking about it entirely within the existing framework, right? They're not thinking about like, oh, bam, this is an anomaly, right? Whereas China is much more like, no, look, we're communists 
and we're developing, right? Uh, ex- and so it's ex- like, excuse me, uh, comrade. Mm-hmm. Uh, the North Koreans respect Earth Day. It's just that every day is Earth Day. <laughs> right, of course. I <laughs> mean, North, North Koreans care, care very much about about the, um, the the sky, the ability to see the sky, the ability to see the stars. You know, the stars that initially inspired man to rise up from the mud. I believe that we should adopt. I believe that we should adopt these policies ourselves. In fact, I have heard that they're going to do rolling blackouts in San Francisco next summer. Uh, ah. <laughs> but was that all aside? No, but but the the point is the point is like with Korea and Taiwan, as you're saying, Ash. Um, the it, it it's been easier to write those off as as not anomalies as as entirely within the pattern of oh yeah these are capitalist economies these are western aligned economies these are democracies uh therefore like of course they do well whereas china is like no we're not a democracy i mean i actually i think they claim to be a democracy but everyone's like no clearly not our kind of democracy right um it's like they're not a democracy they're definitely not they definitely claim not to be doing capitalism and and they're definitely still having this this huge economic growth that that's very overtly state driven in in many ways and so it's like presents this much more salient anomaly uh one thing i want to point out going back to i think maybe wolf what you were saying earlier about libertarianism which is that uh there has been a current of this uh thinking in america for the last 10 years at least of more uh state-centric development and focus um but in the more public consciousness and even in, in sort of like DC wonk circles, uh, it's, it's really only emerged, uh, post Trump. And, yeah. and I, and I don't even think it's emerged, uh, because suddenly everyone has realized that these arguments are the best arguments. It's just that there's a dramatic power shift, a dramatic, uh, public narrative shift. And, yeah. uh, and then people decide, whether they're aware of it or not, that that's just the direction their mind heads in. And I'm not convinced that a lot of these people who now embrace uh, nationalist economics, for instance, uh, can effectively just sit down and, and write convincing rebuttals to all the libertarian positions. Yeah, yeah, they no, they like, like this is this is something that you realize is like, like very clearly this this problem of like public perception and public ideology is not at all driven by argument and reason. Right. It's driven by like who, you know, who, who controls the TV stations. Basically, it's like where what are the messages that are that are being bombarded into the public and into the public consciousness and how. Right. And so, like, there's this power game behind that. And this this bring, comes back to something I wanted to say earlier, which is just like how decisively this thing has happened really like it, it's this very uh, salient example of of what actually drives the thing, right? Like it almost it resolves a lot of those questions that people have of like, oh well, does does metapolitics work? Does talking about ideology work, or like are things decided top down from the state, or are things decided bottom up from like the moral integrity of the people, or like. Like there's been these debates, right? There's a lot of people having these debates, which, you know, I, I have no I, I have no illusions that those debates are going to be like settled by a new piece of evidence because I don't think they're they're like real in an important sense. But but for us looking at this, we can take this as an example of like, OK, look, very clearly the state has moved and disregarded what 
all the other factors or like a lot of the other factors were saying and and like the state was able to move independent of the of the narrative independent of capital interests um and independent of of you know bureaucratic inertia and so on and it was able to just switch to and, and like switch the zeitgeist in a way and i don't know like if the, the zeitgeist switch overall is like a planned thing but there have been movements of power um and and some big movements within the state that have totally shifted the landscape like just over the last year yeah, or two and, and it's important and, and and the big takeaway that i want to take from that is like just how much there is a like small part of society that is determining what the rest of society is doing. And that part is very closely related to the state. And like, this has been one of the big points that's sort of like implicit in all our work is like, no, look, the state is really important. It's really important to understand how power works. And, and the nature of the state is such that that power is concentrated in the state. And, and this is like this, this nice demonstration of that, that like, look, these things are very much driven top down a lot of the time. Yeah, but it's important, I think, as well to say that even in cases where you have these entrenched actors, they are often responding to very near incentives rather than large coordinated plans. And I mean this in the sense yeah, that it's discussed in the article where we have this issue where lobbying in Europe or American lobbying in Europe specifically doesn't seem to have actually gained as much coordination as was desired. And so you're you're correct they moved independently of a lot of opposing interests but their incentive was not like a grand reshaping of uh you know political and economic uh frame they they were responding no, to, to a, a diplomatic problem um and yeah and they were resolving that immediate problem however that decision has large ripple effects i yeah, think yeah, jonah, so uh, jonah you made a point about how Often it, it it's really, you know, you'll have people drifting sort of on instinct or they can feel the wind blowing a certain way, but they're not going to be doing in-depth analysis and rebuttal. I would predict we're already actually seeing a point that's arising where we're going to see a contradiction that has to be resolved in some way. And that's antitrust. And the reason is that, you know, people across the board on the right and the left uh, have been, you know, starting to get tougher on antitrust, right? So you have like Tucker Carlson channeling Teddy Roosevelt in, in in his show. And on the other side, you have like Elizabeth Warren talking about Amazon and social media companies. But if you're going for industrial policy, one of the, the concepts that is discussed is export discipline. And basically what this does is uh, because you are using the global economy, um, to means test the industries that the state is like taking a command and developing. So, so say you say you want to have like an auto industry, for example, the state can take a number of initiatives to like help that infrastructure develop in very radical ways. But the way that you test that market is by selling on the global market, which is essentially right the largest, most cutthroat level of competition. What this does is it kills off uh, uncompetitive companies very quickly. Those resources move to competitive companies. Now, the thing with this is that it favors large companies and favors vertically integrated companies. 
in other words, if you're committing like very hardcore anti or if you're implementing very hardcore antitrust policies, you actually risk undermining the industrial policy strategy. And I think that for so for people listening to this, um, this would be a good issue to keep an eye on. And uh, not this isn't a plug, but you know pieces on this would be really excellent to have uh, on the site. So if anyone wants to pick up their metaphorical pen. Uh, I'd definitely like to see more on this. Yeah, well, like the the Amazon piece is actually a good start because it 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 does call out this big interesting tension of, you know, Amazon becoming this huge centrally administered part of the economy that's extremely powerful, even becoming politically powerful, and yet, like, totally. Um, you know, does not get hit by existing antitrust law. Um, like in the sense that it, it, it basically benefits the consumers. Everyone loves Amazon. Um, and, and so like that, that's sort of related to what you're saying, but, but not entirely. What you're saying is more like as, as you need to restructure the economy, you need the support of of these powerful titans of industry and you need them to keep their power. You need them to have these big, powerful, um, well, they have, they can create economies of scale. They can vertically integrate yeah. supply lines, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, so this you is need, a very established you these, thing. You need these guys, these industrialists who can actually run your centrally administered economy. Right. Like th that, that's something that people like maybe don't necessarily appreciate. Yeah. Is, I would say centrally is, coordinated rather than centrally administered. Those are two different things, okay, but sure. it is because we are still using the market here to test like yeah yeah you're, you're still you're still using the market but like when you get something like amazon that eats like half the market in some space uh it it's like you've somehow you've somehow like centralized this huge component of the economy and the only reason you were able to do that is because this specific titan of industry was able to figure out a way to do that and build the machinery to do it like it's not like you know, a, a bunch of comrades in their Soviet can like figure out how to centralize the economy. It's actually a really, really difficult task. Yeah, well, I made this point. Uh, um, I think it was on Twitter. Uh, it's premature to discuss a planned economy now because the private sector has to finish building it first. <laughs> right, right. No, but that that implies a level of like linearity to the thing, which I don't think is entirely the case because it, it like it's it's at least on the short term that I'm talking about, it's much more about like, do you have the founders and do they have the empires? Um, and if, if yes, then you can get them to run these huge swaths of the economy. And if no, then good luck. I want to uh, talk about, uh, I know I, I'm, I may be beating a dead horse at this point, but, but libertarianism and, and the 2016 election. Uh, I think before 2016, you would see these occasional articles in places like Reason and uh, sort of like libertarian-ish, libertarian-friendly publications where they would take some uh, public opinion polling data or like voter survey and say like, I think the kids are becoming libertarian or, you know, Americans are much more libertarian than they actually think. And this is a very, very naive way of thinking about politics and political affiliation. As if it mattered what the people thought. Well, sure. There, <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, there's that, right? Uh, and then there's the point that, uh, like, it implies that, you know, voters actually maintain some kind of 
uh, internally consistent set of positions. Right, right. Like, like, is is there any sense in which like Rothbard is similar to your run of the mill libertarian, or or um, you know th- th- that support for weed legalization implies anything anything more than that? But what we right. really saw post twenty sixteen is that, uh, and and of course, actually, to say one more thing. Uh, it, it also is is deeply contingent on the way the the poll questions are asked. So right. I, I I just had to get that off my chest. These really annoying articles that I see occasionally. Uh, but after 2016, um, basically what happened is that uh, a bunch of libertarians woke up one day and realized that they were actually nationalists, uh, and that libertarianism was sort of just um, a convenient. A resting spot uh, for maybe a social group or for funding or for something else. Uh, and they realized that just in the way they supported Ron Paul, who is sort of like a rebel against the establishment on the right, they supported Trump as well uh, because he sort of got to the more fundamental reality of what they cared about. Uh, and libertarianism just wasn't cutting it. On the other hand, you saw a bunch of libertarians with somewhat uh, left-leaning sympathies. And so this coalition that existed in libertarianism of we can both be left and right here and and hang out together, but let's just remember that our common enemy is the state. And when such zeitgeists shift, as as is what happened with the uh, Trump election, that thing fell apart. And a lot of left-leaning libertarians went full DSA, just as a lot of right-leaning libertarians went full nationalist or full Trump or something like that. Yeah, and and that's that's an important thing, like to 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 sort of connect to what you were saying earlier, like the in terms of what kind of cognitive object is it? Like when we talk about this person being a libertarian, what does that actually mean? Right. It means he's flying that flag because that. It's like a convenient banner for the faction that that he sees uh, he sees his political interests lying with, and 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 factional interests are much more like material than than ideological. Usually, it's not about the arguments. I'm sorry to say, usually it's about uh, psychological predispositions, social circles you uh, tend to end up in. Uh, particular, uh, you know, uh, inclination to a particular policy in some area. Like I know a lot of people were driven to libertarianism because they like marijuana, things like this, or because uh, they were, you know, they were able to get funding or or something like this. More easily, you don't like a particular government, so you make a principle that government as such is bad. I mean, to me, that really... Uh, that communicates that you really don't think you can ever be the government. You know, well, you will well, never yeah. actually have power uh, in in most cases. And the way we know this is because, um, in as Joan is mentioning here, on both the right and the left of libertarianism itself, the moment the the Overton window was shifting, sort of locally shifting. Uh, and it actually seemed like spaces were opening up for more radical, um political expressions you know they all flipped to whatever statist ideology suited their own temperament and by the way this you know isn't an indictment of libertarianism specifically obviously it applies to just about any ideology that exists right because this is just 
a fundamental property of the yeah, they, way that... Yeah, they're just a well-documented example. Yeah, I, I, exactly, exactly. Um, and and now that that's, that sort of zeitgeist has fallen apart a little bit, uh, Trump's rhetoric has caused people to give, to put attentional focus on areas uh, that would have otherwise been simply written off. And, and I'm thinking in particular uh, stuff like state logic over economic logic, uh, as in the prioritization of, of state interests and sovereignty over uh, economic gain for particular uh, private actors, or you know, on the domestic level, you've got antitrust, or uh, even tech censorship is a big issue as well. Uh, you know, a lot of conservatives prior to 2016 uh, would have taken the libertarian line of, you know, essentially there's no there's no real difference except in degree between um, like a a baker uh, and a social media platform like Twitter. So if if you know if we don't want to force the baker to right, they're private uh, businesses in particular. You know, bake a swastika cake, or you know, bake a gay cake, or bake an ISIS cake, or some such similar thing, then we should let Twitter uh, police its own platforms in, entirely in, in the way it wants because it's a private company. That is slowly starting to fall apart, and you are seeing conservatives now making arguments that like. Uh, we should, uh, you know, threaten Section 230 uh, retribution in, in the event that they're not maintaining uh, political neutrality on their platforms. Or, uh, you know, we should just maintain that access to the public forum and, and Twitter is that public forum, that it's, a, it's some sort of civil right, uh, which, is, which is quite a different sort of conservatism. Um, than you would have seen even a de- a, de- a decade ago. Well, uh, even so even two years ago, <laughs> like even t- even two years ago. Like actually. again, it's, it's this big zeitgeist shift that that has coincided with Trump. How much it's caused by Trump, or or just sort of comorbid with Trump? Who knows? It's it's comorbid with Trump, but I think if I had to, in terms of broader public consciousness, it's probably eighty twenty, where eighty percent of this is is motivated by Trump, and twenty percent was kind of slowly building over the last decade. Yeah, yeah. The, well, Trump didn't come stra- out of nowhere in particular. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, these strains of thought have been around for the past decade, germinating, certainly. Yeah, well, or, or like, or longer than that, right? Like, it, like you were saying about, you know, strains of thought existing within the government where, where they just, like, you know, they're, they're boiling away there in the background. They've kind of got their own worldview that isn't just the public worldview and you know so so when they when they shift in direction and sort of drive things in a different direction you suddenly have this this like weird shear of like the government being super comp super confident behind this like worldview that's just totally alien to the public narrative well that's because there was actually that worldview just sitting there all along and then public narrative was was uh, itself kind of delusional about about what people actually how people actually looked at the world um so but just just to make the point basically that that these strains i think there's a lot of like there's a lot of corners you know dark corners and, and maybe bright corners um in various institutions and in various corners of the internet and so on where a lot of these interesting different ways of thinking are being kept alive um 
and, and then like occasionally uh, one of them will, will seed the mainstream in an important way or, or will, uh, you know, really drive, drive a change. Yeah. So the real question here, I think, then becomes um, because, you know, when, when we're discussing these developments on Palladium, you know, it is interesting to discuss what's occurring in some some online niche or in some like particular faction in an organization or a company or a party. But our our interest is also in the long run. Um, are are any of these going to actually structurally manifest themselves in some kind of development on a larger scale and provide continuity? And I think that's going to be. The, you know, in the same way I was sort of talking about earlier, where competition weeds out weed companies, I think the competition in the political sphere is going to really test who is kind of just moving with the winds on this versus who is actually um, a, uh, I mean, I don't even want to say just an intellectual, an intellectually rigorous approach, but who, who is actually acting concretely um in, in a way that provides structural transformation. Because, uh, you know, on the right, I think it's fairly clear at this point that there is going to be a, uh, a populist continuity, we could call it after Trump, um, whenever that might be uh, simultaneously on the Maybe. left, this generation. I, I mean, e even just ideologically, I'm saying. And, and on yeah, the left, but, meanwhile, but like, th there's a generation growing up now that is at least for a time going to shift the parameters of debate um and there's going to be competition between these right and so the 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 question here is going to be will any of these groups actually have the the threshold to create structural change in the u.s government which is an incredibly difficult you know overextended global organization at this point which makes this this is not fdr's america even yeah. right so so uh Going back to what Wolf was saying briefly, uh, I'm reminded of the time uh, back in 2015 when uh, the Obama administration uh, blocked Intel from selling uh, processors to China to uh, build its newest supercomputer, um, which is kind of an indicate that wasn't as loud as this Huawei ban, but it is an indication uh, that this is across administrations. That, yeah, that this predated Trump. That this predated Trump, and you yeah. can see it in similar warnings and similar actions in the Bush administration as well. Now, to go to what Ash was saying, um, basically, if if my model is right, uh, I would say that this it's almost entirely or largely dependent on the results of, of the 2020 election. Um, whether Trump wins another four years or whether he doesn't. Um, and while I think you'll, you will see some, uh, you know, antitrust sentiment still linger on the left with Elizabeth Warren, that's not where most of the energy is right now. And I don't expect Elizabeth Warren to win either. Um, I may, I, I could eat my words, but I would put money on it that yeah. she's not going to win. Well, I mean, I'm, so, I'm not so going to expect... If, 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 if Trump loses 2020, I would expect that there would be a small segment of uh, D.C. conservatism that retains the sort of nationalist outlook, but it has yet even now really to coalesce in a set of permanent think tanks with a permanent donor class. Um, 
that remains to be seen whether that continues if, if Trump loses. And my, my inclination is that it largely gets defeated as a narrative, but probably sticks around in some very small, uh, permanent section of conservatism. I, w- I wouldn't even say that it would stick around. Like, I think post-Trump, the look, let, let's not give the sort of bottom-up narrative more currency than it's worth. And, I, like, this this populist thing is... It's like, yeah, there's a lot of concerns and a lot of discourse happening uh, and, and some electoral success behind the populist thing. But I think it's really driven by the existence of that opportunity. And, you know, if Trump is defeated like as you guys have alluded to i don't think there actually is any institutional structure for you know the continuity of the populist thing like the bannon in particular you know is trying to build that and he's he's rather well positioned as like the guy to do it you know he was elected with trump uh or as part of that team and like really held the banner of the populist thing and like he's getting sort of stymied at uh in many of the things he's trying to do, like the rest of kind of respectable society kind of hates him and and tries to screw them whenever he does anything. So like, I I don't see any real competent players really risking themselves kind of like trying to keep the thing alive, especially, especially Breitbart and and related institutions will of course continue to exist. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So of course a bunch of stuff's going to continue to exist. The ideas, the people will continue to exist, but here's what I think happens. I think like after, like, let's say Trump gets defeated or whatever. I think that, you'd get like a as sort of as radical a transformation in these strains of thought and radical change in like demographic size of the thing as you had from the sort of pre-Trump era to the Trump era, right? Like Trump kind of pulled a bunch of this ways of thinking out of the woodwork that previously were not visible to the public. And I think after Trump, similarly, you might get something like stuffed back in the closet or or like maybe it just takes on some new form. But it's it's going to be it, it's not going to be very recognizable. It's not going to be like, oh, the Trump spirit lives on. It's going to be like, OK, a bunch of the people who were in the Trump on the Trump train, like went and did this other thing that just kind of kind of related, but pretty different. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's, it, that's what I would expect. What I really don't want to happen is for uh, this kind of state logic or even industrial policy to be tied to Trump specifically, because it certainly isn't tied to him specifically. The Obama, the Obama administration was definitely interested in industrial policy. Well, and I, I think the fact that like Elizabeth Warren right. is is championing this same kind of point of view. Uh, that indicates that like this isn't just a Trumpist thing. This is Trump has catalyzed a change in the zeitgeist overall, or has been related to that change. And, and so there's a bit of a scrambling for the creation of a of a new voting coalition. Right? Yeah, because and and the, the driving uh, force here are these more permanent interests and organizations that we've already discussed. I think that's the important thing to point out here. On the flip side, to okay, we you know we, we can argue that that in terms of of the think tank world, say there might not be a real continuity, but so long as those interests continue to exist and act, uh, you know that final stage of 
like what political branding does industrial policy take on is really the final step and you know seeing the way the various ways that uh obama and then trump and then current people on right and left are talking about it um they're competing for the backing of a certain set of interests right those interests will be the determinants and when i was referring earlier to you know this is not fdr's america um the, the set of interests involved here are a lot more global in reach at this point a lot more powerful a lot more diverse in a certain way um because you know the economy and the state and all of this are all larger uh and, and so that means that um the, the so long so long as there is an interest um that desires a move to industrial policy um and even for political reasons like if you're a global company that's mainly american based and you're competing now against chinese state corporations because we shouldn't actually discount that like if 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 our rivals right if you're a company and your rivals actually have state backing are actually benefiting from like a rigorous industrial policy you're going to want to equalize that playing right. field and i i think that's the thing that we want to look at first in terms of where will continuity come from Right. And that's, that sort of comes back to like the crony capitalism angle. Like you might naively expect like, oh yeah, the, the corporate interests are just going to kill all the regulations and so on. But, but actually the corporations like the, the big ones, especially like the state to take a heavy hand in regulating because it means that they, with their resources to have a relationship with the state can dodge those regulations more uh, more effectively dodge and deal with those regulations more effectively and and it actually strengthens their yeah well and this is actually a distinction between successful and unsuccessful industrial policies there are a lot of countries where um you'll have things like subsidies occur like this happened in malaysia i think to an extent in brazil as well companies which are not competitive um are are able to you know perform regulatory capture essentially and then have like a permanent lifeline that supports their uncompetitive yeah. industries. That's why the export discipline aspect is so important. It's not just that you're means testing your own programs, but it actually lets you, you know, resist at least regulatory capture by a, a weak and uncompetitive company. Ideally, of course, you want to actually avoid it altogether. Yeah, like you could imagine a very weak and dysfunctional economy where the state has a strong hand in the economy and, and you know, big companies are pushing around the state to prop them up against failure and, uh, you know, and, and like have captured those policies and so on. And like, you know, we, we don't have to describe this. This has been like very well described by the libertarians. They've kind of like, you know, painted this picture uh, they've they've presented it as this is what any state intervention in the economy looks like, but I think what we're trying to say here is like, you know, while it has some superficial similarities with that, there's this whole other mode of being, which is that the state is stronger and more coordinated than the companies, um, and 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 is pulling off like a an actually competent industrial policy, and that's kind of like the that third option between like capitalism this this like crony crony capitalist socialism and the the third option being being the the 
sort of like coherent industrial development. Yeah, well, also. but I don't even want to necessarily that, think that of it as a third option being... because this, the, you know, the, this third way idea has been discussed repeatedly, and I think that still leaves us trapped in this very old perspective where it's sort of the state adopting no, ideology I, I don't mean... rather than. No, I, I'm not. I'm not making a reference to that. I, I'm saying, uh, like the the existence of this other possibility i'm not saying like okay third way between like capitalism and socialism or whatever i'm saying like this option was not really understood to exist and china has forced it into the consciousness uh of of the like chattering classes yeah and for in that at that point you're going from like this is the benefit in a way to taking the state or sorry the the state as your sort of locus of agency and analysis in that rather than your rather than the question being um which which worldview are we going to operate under and then we'll solve the problems afterward you first identify goals right and then you sort of think about yeah. okay so how does a competent state achieve these things? And so, and, and I'll repeat a point I made in a previous episode. Um, I, I think when that ideological frame, you get trapped in this like fanaticism about means, like should you use um, X planned economy or Y free market system to achieve wealth? Right. And this discussion is essentially, we're not going to be dogmatic about the means to achieve wealth. We're going to like think about the particular context that we, you know, whatever, whatever country it is, we're going to think about the context the country is in. We're going to think about where it makes sense to do like um, the sort of mission style approach. We're going to think about where markets make sense, etc. And then we're going to craft a pragmatic policy because the end, we are more committed to the end than we are to the means. Yeah, and that's this is like a, a good sort of way of contrasting. I think you put it really well with the presenting it as as um, being about where's your locus of agency and your locus of analysis and putting it in the state versus somewhere else. Like I think there's been this kind of um, tendency in the in the discourse around these things um, in in recent decades to kind of like think of the state as this thing entirely without agency like the state is just this territory that that the actual actors which are the people and potentially corporate interests like kind of they 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 poke at the state to make it do things in this kind of mechanistic way and the state itself doesn't have any interests or doesn't have any agency to it um and and we're kind of like turning that around and being like okay wait what if we look at things from the perspective of the state as such and, you know, okay, how do we develop the economy? How do we think about the economy? How do we understand this stuff? What are our strategies? What are our theories? What are our plans for that kind of d direction? I think that's an interesting shift of perspective. Um, yeah, and it's not to say that the state is, kind of is like, the only interest here. I think that's um, an, an error people no, can fall but into, it's, but it's it is like, an interest among yeah, other yeah. interests. And there's a struggle but between it, it interests is, that goes on there that is not merely limited to these sort of external yeah. players. Yeah, though, though I would say here that like once you admit the existence of the state and the existence of and, and, and the agency of the state, I think you rapidly realize that like by its nature, the state is the most powerful coordinate, like the most powerful system of power in any society. Like that, that's kind of why it's the state. It's, it's this holistic system of power that has, you know, to some extent formalized itself. Um, but 
anyways, I, I had another point here, which is like coming back to the idea of, of like kind of ideological pragmatism, Ash, that you were talking about. This is related to something Jonah was saying earlier about like, you know, people don't really have necessarily like coherent following of, of arguments and so on. It's, it's largely like people following their internal dispositions or their, it's people following, you know, whatever kind of banner is fashionable for their kind of factional political interests right now. Um, like, like I think that paints a picture that's a little bit too pessimistic on, on the existence of, of human reason. So I would point out like that there are people who actually do think about things in terms of the the logic uh, and the arguments and the strategy and so on. But not that they don't have political interests and they don't follow their political interests, but that they are independently working on their own worldview. Um, and I think what happens with those people in in ideology is they, they don't they don't necessarily end up with having ideology as such or it ends up very different from everyone else's it's more like they have theories and they have strategies and they have plans and they have like specific allies and so on like they end up actually being a different sort of of political actor than you know your average libertarian or or ideologue of whatever whatever persuasion and so that's that's kind of like related to to what you're saying ash of of like this this ideological pragmatism i think there are there is this this like mode of of political thought which is much more focused on on specific theories and specific strategies um in a more detailed way rather than in a more like banner waving like yay this concept boo that concept kind of thing uh, so before we wrap up, I want to take it back to the article a little bit and, and note where we are currently, which is that um, Huawei has about 10,000 developers uh, working, you know, essentially 24-7 to, uh, you know, drop the need for American chips. Um and this kind of well, not just Huawei. I mean, China now is going to sure. really put yeah, forward yeah. that that strategic priority. Yeah, and it's not the first time. It's it's had to dodge these sort of embargoes, right? Because back in the Cold War, uh, you know, China was able to succeed in developing the atomic bomb, even. Uh, when it, it had its support cut from, from the Soviet Union, for example. And then, uh, you know, it was developing satellites uh, in the 1990s when the U.S. had, had uh, sanctions on it as well. Um, and as I noted previously about the uh, supercomputer example, you know, they were able to uh, proceed with development on the Taihu light, that's the supercomputer's name, and and that was created based on uh, exclusively made uh, Chinese-made processors, um, which is interesting. And so, while there has been a, a, a long-time effort uh, on forwarding self-reliance, and I think Xi Jinping has explicitly cited, uh, you know, the concept of self-reliance used by Mao's, you know, guerrillas 
when they were fighting the nationalists um, and, you know, applying it here to global supply chains. And so, you know, it's... <laughs> that's so, that's so like, Chinese ideology. I know. I, Chinese <laughs> ideology. Exactly, exactly. Um, so the interesting thing there is, uh, you know, the, the way in which, yes, it's been a priority for some time before the ban, but there's nothing like external friction to make something go. Like, I, 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 yeah. think, I think this is really putting uh, the accelerator on. And uh, so in a sense, I think I read some interview in uh, the publication Sixth Tone, which I believe is, uh, the, you know, a, 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 mag, a, a Chinese magazine, you know, operating out of a merger of some, you know, private media group and some Communist Party media group. And it was, I think, a Chinese computer scientist saying that previous bans had essentially helped spur the country to, to developing uh, its own technological innovations. And so the same principle, I think, is going to apply here. And I think it's going to apply on a much faster timeline now than they would have ever been able to do just under their own energy. There's something about external friction that, that does this. And I think it probably applies in the U.S. case as well. Uh, with NASA against the Soviet Union. Uh, definitely the competition there spurred a level of innovation that I think is not possible otherwise, um, especially when it's so existential about whose system is ultimately better uh, and can achieve more for humanity or, or whatever. Um, so, uh, yes, it's true that, you know, the U.S. is now going to be free of or hopefully free of potential espionage from this kind of infra Huawei infrastructure. But as a trade-off, Huawei now and China in general, they're going to invest the tens of, I mean, they've already invested the t tens of billions of dollars likely into, you know, semiconductors and et cetera. Uh, but I think now it's the, the timeline of development is going to be so rapid compared to anything they could have done before. That's basically my analysis of it. Yeah, and this is what makes it ex what makes it extremely difficult to just uh, think on the level of the nation state because, you know, America and China are able to do what they do because they're able to build infrastructural chains that encircle the globe in various ways and it's going to be extremely you, you know uh even america can can move towards energy independence because they're such a huge country with so many natural resources but you look at at, at if, you know like, like the uk now for example or you look at france um you know you're you're gonna have a much tougher time and and you are going to be forced to align with one or another great power uh, and its block of allied countries. Uh, and, and, you know, th this is really, we saw this in the Cold War. And, it's, you know, some, someone has made the point before on here, I believe, that um, in the Cold War, right, the American bloc dominated productivity. I mean, it just wasn't even a contest. There was a military threat. There was not the threat that the Soviet Union was going to surpass America in productivity. In this case, we're dealing with blocs where, you know, 
where that productivity is much higher and in some countries you know they can be near peers they might even be able to surpass western and and american productivity and that's going to make this conflict a lot tougher and it's going to really reveal um the way in which that like material basis uh you know manifests itself as political power well with that, I think we're out of time. It's almost been an hour and a half of, of this, and I think we've had a good discussion. And uh, I think we ought to leave it at that and uh, see everyone next week. Yeah, till next time. See That's ya. Good. Sounds good. Sounds good.